Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, some interesting numbers have come in. A study just released by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Athena Research, a division of Athena Health, shows that dire warnings of long delays at primary care facilities due to the millions of newly insured Americans simply have not happened under the Affordable Care Act. It's an interesting data set, Mark, and part of an ongoing partnership to chart the true impact of the Affordable Care Act. It's called the ACA View, and the aim is to provide a nonpartisan analysis of the actual effect of the health care law. What's interesting about the report, Margaret, is that it's aggregating real-time patient and provider experience data from Athena Health's large patient database. They provide a health IT system for 52,000 practitioners, so a large patient population there. They're measuring some 35 metrics over time and are able to rely on real-time data for research and analysis. It's a pretty comprehensive snapshot of healthcare marketplace. Well, perhaps the biggest revelation in this first of what will no doubt be many reports is that it showed there's no significant wait time added to the patient experience for those seeking primary care or other ambulatory services. That was the dire prediction that came from opponents of the health care law, and certainly there was some uh, experience of that in Massachusetts years ago. So other interesting findings in the report as well should be of interest to anybody in the care delivery or health policy field. And there's another interesting metric to note, that is the direct result results of the health care law. Insurers seem pretty happy with the outcome so far since the nation's uninsured rate dropped from 18 percent last year to 13.4 percent this year. That means millions more customers for insurance companies. And there will be another wave of newly insured during the next open enrollment. We're not too far around the corner, Margaret. Very interesting to see just how many opportunities the health care law is providing for gathering real metrics on the health care system, hopefully on outcomes too. And that's bound to have an impact on the actual delivery of care. That's something our guest knows quite a bit about today, Margaret. Peter Spreyer is the Chief Data and Technology Officer at the Institute of Health Metrics Evaluation at the University of Washington. Well, they've developed a groundbreaking report on the collective health of over 200 countries around the globe. It's called the Global Burden of Disease. It's the most detailed report to date on the causes of poor health and death by country. Just a massive undertaking that required some state-of-the-art computing technology. And they'll be talking about some of the fascinating health trends that their report has revealed. We'll also have our weekly visit with Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misrepresented facts in the health health policy world. No matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at info at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Peter Speyer in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The healthcare law by the numbers. 10.6 million people. That's the number of Americans who sought some kind of assistance signing up for insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Some 28,000 assisters helped guide those 10 million plus Americans through the insurance exchanges, those online portals set up by the ACA to provide an insurance marketplace. 8 million folks signed up for the insurance, ultimately, and another 5 million included in coverage through expanded Medicaid. Folks living in states that created their own exchanges were 
were generally in favor of the health care law were most likely to find assistance as well. But even states like Texas, which fought vociferously against the law and which didn't expand Medicaid, has seen an uptick in folks signing up for Medicaid coverage, due in part to all the publicity surrounding the rollout of the health care law. And insurers did pretty well, too. The nation's uninsured rate peaked at 18 percent last year. After the rollout of the first open enrollment, that percentage dropped down to 13.4 percent, meaning millions of new customers for the insurance industry. Hepatitis C finally has a vanquisher, but the regimen is cost prohibitive in most cases. The state of Oregon appears to be nearing what could be a first in the nation's stance, limiting availability to Medicaid patients of new hepatitis C treatments that offer great promise at a very high price, $84,000 for a three-month treatment. On July 31st, a state committee will consider guidelines intended to limit treatment only to patients who face serious liver damage without the drug. They expect to save about $120 million by doing that. And women in Detroit have a worse chance of surviving maternity than women in Libya, Uruguay, or Vietnam. The maternal death rate in Detroit is three times the national average, and it's going up, according to recent data. It's not just a phenomenon in the Motor City. Maternal death rates are on the rise in other parts of the country as well. Those working on the front lines of maternal health are hoping initiatives in the Affordable Care Act will get high-risk women into more prenatal care sooner. Better news on the stroke front. According to a study looking at 20 years of data, the incidence of stroke is down about 50 percent over two decades and death by stroke reduced by 40 percent. The decline being attributed to better control of high blood pressure, reduced smoking rates and better care protocols. The rise in diabetes, however, may negatively impact that trend over time. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Peter Speyer, Chief Data and Technology Officer at the Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation at the University of Washington, where he oversees the infrastructure for global and public health data gathering from governments around the world that led to the groundbreaking report, Global Burden of Disease. Before that, Mr. Speyer was Director of Global Marketing Strategies for Corbis, a digital imaging managing company, which oversees the rights to over 100 million images. In his native Germany, Peter worked as a senior consultant at Bertelsmann. Peter holds an MBA from Temple University and a Master's of Business Engineering from the University of Karlsruhe, Germany. Peter, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Hi, Mark. Thanks. And hello, Margaret. It's great to be here. You've been at the forefront of this new era of big data analytics which is really transforming global health. And at the Institute of Health Metric Evaluation, you're responsible for managing vast reams of data from around the globe, which measures disease and causes of death in over 180 countries. And we were fortunate to have the director, Dr. Murray, on the show talking about the initial report, Global Burden of Disease. And uh, tell our listeners uh, how you helped create the secure infrastructure that allowed the report uh, to come into being. So the Global Burden of Disease Study is a, is a really, really large and complex study, uh, incorporating lots of data from very many different sources. What we're trying to do in this uh, study is to analyze to what extent our health is impacted by different disease and injuries. And so we're trying to express in life year equivalents how many years we're losing to these diseases, both from premature mortality, so about 55 million people die uh, every given year around the world, um, and so we are summing up for every death how many life years we are losing from those, as well as 
how diseases that ail us but don't kill us uh, impact our life and expressing in life equivalence how much our health is impacted by those. And so we're creating a a metric called Disability Adjusted Life Year, which is our currency for measuring overall health loss. So Chris and I talked about probably the initial release of the GBD 2010 study. Um, And uh, we have now switched to a model where we're annually updating these numbers. And this new effort is centered at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Um, So the analytic work is done here at the Institute, and then we're working with about 1,000 experts in 100 countries that help us look at the data, vet the results that we're having. So we run the analysis for about 300 diseases, 69 risk factors um, that impact these diseases, and we're looking at 188 countries um, and looking at data by HN sex, and so you can uh, uh, imagine that we need a lot of input data for the study. So we really try to incorporate everything, any data set that has information on uh, health outcomes around the world. So we're working with vital registration, so information from death certificates. We're working with census data, surveys that are collected, disease registries, for example, cancer registries exist in many countries and collect information about cancer, health record data from hospitals, claims data from insurances. So we're incorporating about 30,000 different data sources in this most current update of the GBD. So we're comprehensively looking through the websites of ministries of health, central statistical organizations, NGOs, UN organizations, and others. And some of this information is easily available on websites, um, but in many cases we have to directly contact folks at those organizations and negotiate access to to data because, as you can imagine, health data, especially if it's very detailed and has information on individuals, is very sensitive. Um, and And so it's a constant balance of trying to get access to these data and make them available for research. Peter, certainly gathering the data was just one of a number of very daunting tasks required to complete the project. And I understand you had to come up with some new tools and ways of using them to assist in the data analysis. And that bodes well, of course, for innovation and data analytics uh, around the globe in all sorts of areas. But maybe you could share with us what kinds of innovations in big data analytics made it possible for you to approach all this information in useful ways that maybe couldn't have been done in the past? And did some of the new analysis reveal surprises about the state of global health and causes of mortality around the globe? The approach is really focusing around six major components. What we're trying to do um, in GBD, and I'm telling you this because different methods apply to the different parts of the study. We're starting with measuring all-cause mortality around the world, and what that means is for every age group in every country, we're trying to identify exactly how many people died in a given year from a given cause. And then we're analyzing how, uh, which causes were responsible for these deaths. Um, and doing it in the sequence makes sure that every death um, in the world is accounted for only once. Um, so once we've analyzed causes of death, we go on to analyze um, how diseases that ail but don't kill us affect us. And so we're looking at the prevalence of, of different diseases. And then we look at risk factors and then putting it all together. And as you can imagine with the number of data sets, um, we have to apply various statistical methods. And given the number of data sets and the complexity of the analysis, we have actually built out our own computer cluster with about 10,000 nodes. So 10,000 computers plugged together. Um, and still it takes about uh, four to five days to run the analysis beginning to end. So with this current uh, iteration of GBD, we really innovated on each one of these, on, of these steps and developed new methods. And, and I would say... Given that in more recent times, much more data became available and the uh, methods that we are uh, deploying are much more sophisticated, um, that really has impacted a lot of change in terms of how we can do this analysis. Um, What did we find? We, over the past 20 years, so GBD goes back to 1990, have made a huge progress in terms of reducing uh, mortality in children. Mm -hmm. 
there were about 10 million deaths in children in 1990 and reduced it to about 7 million in 2010. So it shows how we reduce infectious and childhood diseases. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the, the first huge, uh, huge insight. Mm -hmm. So the second big, uh, big finding is that um, we're living longer um, and getting older, but we're living those additional years uh, not in, in complete health. It's been about 20% of each year that we're adding to life expectancy in poor health. And then the third big insight is we're looking at risk factors besides, uh, besides disease burden. And uh, in 1990, the leading risk factor was childhood malnutrition. So um, most burden in the world was still caused by, by undernutrition. And in 2010, that changed um, to diet as the leading risk factor. So we went from eating, having too little food to eating too much and the, and the wrong things. Um, in the U.S., diet is actually responsible for about 14% of total burden now, followed by smoking and overweight. And especially overweight has massively increased in importance. And so we just recently um, released a study on obesity and overweight that shows time trends and uh, shows that about 30% of the world's population is overweight, overweight or obese. In the U.S., this number is actually 50%. So a lot of these insights are really interesting, both on the disease side and the risk factor side. Mm -hmm. Peter, uh, this brings us to interesting intersections, still daunting to many in the healthcare industry. We have these reams of data, vast bodies of knowledge and health information, but how do we access all the data? And what's your plan for disseminating all this complex health data points that would make it user-friendly. We've been thinking a lot about this as sort of the implementation science of how do you help people study the methods that will help promote this integration of what you have as sort of research and evidence-based knowledge to improve health policy and practice. Um, excellent question. So um, the GBD result is an extremely complex and large data set. We have about a billion data points just in terms of results. Um, and, and then we're trying to make these results available to very different audiences, right? We want other researchers to pick up our work and improve on it. We want um, data analysts, um, folks at foundations and ministries that really want to work, dive deep into the data to work with those. We want to address policymakers and decision makers, um, you know, the C-suite at NGOs and companies to use the data for decision making. But then we also want to reach, um, you know, the, the casual user or general audiences that can use this information to understand better how health is impacted around the world and, and in, a, in, a, in a given country. So what we're trying to do is tailor kind of the, the presentation of these results to these different audiences and using very different mechanisms. So for one, as I said, all the methods that we're using for GBD are published in peer-reviewed peer papers, so reaching journalists through, thing, through papers like The Lancet, JAMA, mm -hmm. New England Journal of Health, and others. Um, then we're writing detailed reports, both on how we did the analysis and then some of the key insights and findings that we have from the study. We're going to conferences to present our findings. Um, we're doing trainings and telling others more about that, as well as policy workshops to help policymakers interpret and use these um, results correctly. The game changer in this whole and the, the biggest innovation in terms of outreach are these interactive data visualizations that are now available on our website, hmm. which is at um, healthdata.org. Um, because those really make all the data available from a very high level of view to a very large degree of detail. And it basically allows the, our audiences to drill into the level of detail that they're comfortable with. And so what we're trying to do is make these intuitive enough that people can explore our data sets, look at patterns, look at trends across, you know, across countries or within a given country. And our flagship visualization, GBD Compare, uses very many different visuals that you can then use in combination to, to really dive into the, into the data sets. And it's interesting that 
Um, typically, people spend, you know, minutes on websites at best, and usage for GBD Compare ranges between 30 minutes and an hour on average. So people are really getting mm -hmm. into this, um, in, into the data and into interacting with these data and exploring them. And then last but not least, we launched a platform called the Global Health Data Exchange, and here we're cataloging all the input data as well as the results data sets. Um, that we're using to make it easy for others that want to do a similar analysis um, to find data by country, disease, and then basically obtain and work with these data themselves. Well, to do this on a, a global scale is remarkable, and I have a feeling that someone out there uh, is taking your research and now marrying it up to what we think of as the social determinants of health, the poverty in a country or the educational level of attainment in a country or the status of women's rights in a country. And I'm curious if you have seen it used in that way to drive policy change within the ministries of health with countries around the globe, and if there are any examples you might share of where the report is being used to drive policy change? Well, the, the social determinants, um, as well as the risk factors I was mentioning earlier, um, it really goes both ways, right? So we're looking at social determinants as information in terms of estimating health. So we have a large uh -huh. um, database of things like access to water and sanitation, educational mm -hmm. status, income per capita, and so on, that help, that help us in the analytic process, and especially for countries where, where we have limited data to be able to estimate more precisely how the burden plays out. In terms of usage, um, we get a lot of interest from around the world. So we see on the website that we have users from 200 plus countries. And we have specific examples like the government in the UK that saw the results of our study and wanted to dive deeper and look subnationally how different uh, populations within the UK are, are affected. And so we have launched a project with them to go into more detail there. Or the Minister of Health in Rwanda mm -hmm. contacted us and saying that these visualizations are so useful mm -hmm. that they're having recurring meetings where they go through these and try to learn more about their country and, and use the evidence that we've put together for them to make better decisions on health. And those are just two examples. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's many more where we directly engage with folks at ministries or nonprofits, foundations across the UN and so on that we know use our data and interact with, with our tools and really use them in, in their day-to-day -day work to make decisions. We're speaking today with Peter Spryer, Chief Data and Technology Officer of the Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation at the University of Washington, where he oversees the infrastructure for global and public health data gathering for, uh, from governments around the world, which lead to uh, the groundbreaking report, uh, Global Burden of Disease. Uh, Peter, we're entered this uh, era of quantified self where patients are increasingly seeking uh, information, uh, whether it's on their genome or tracking vital signs or wearing Fitbits. Uh, uh, and what's your advice to practices as they think about how to manage this uh, generated uh, information by individuals? What practices should they be looking at in terms of data infrastructures that uh, might help facilitate the two-way uh, flow of information from patient to practitioner? And I assume this is not just a phenomena. Uh, here, it's uh, happening all over the world, the, the new platform being the obviously the mobile phone, uh, being able to bring people to new realizations about uh, their own health. Uh, you're, you're very right. This is a phenomenal trend, and it's really interesting to see how it's catching on really across the world. Uh, I myself, I'm tracking, you know, activity levels, food intake, uh, workouts, and so on. 
Um, and as people are doing this more and more, I think um, this is really useful information at, at many levels, right? You mentioned practices um, that actually physicians should be using this. I mean, I should be able to go with this to my doctor um, and, and let him or her know um, about these data, and they should use it for, for um, kind of helping me manage my health. I think the problem we're still seeing is that uh, physicians come back to that with, with answers um, that range from, oh, that's very interesting, let's have a look, all the way to, I have nowhere to put this in right. my system. Right. Um, I don't actually want to see this because right. I, I don't know actually how to handle it and I don't want to be liable in any way to, to not or have used this. So I think there's still this, this divide where mm -hmm. now we, can, we have all these tools to collect all these data, but there's really no good streamlined way of getting that into the into the day-to-day -day, um, healthcare healthcare system, um, so I think for now there's a lot of the burden on the individual to kind of try and use these data. Obviously, it's very useful to track your activity. I myself am motivated to move more and work out more because now I have a track record of mm -hmm. how well I actually did this. Um, and there's very useful tools um, for individuals to, to bring together all the health data in one place, like the Microsoft Health Vault that's been around for years that allows you to pull in your health record information and then now increasingly data from, from, from these, these devices. But on the flip side, um, I think we'll, we'll need to be careful to look at where do these data reside and are, can we really move them um, a, a, across, the, across the health system as well as then make them available for analysis, right? Mm -hmm. There's a big danger that different companies will be collecting these data and they're really then living in silos. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's hard to then port the data from your, your Fitbit to your healthcare provider and then get, get all this information in one place. And then maybe to take one step back, um, obviously these data are also very important for analysis at the population level like we do for GBD. So uh, physical activity is one of the risk factors we're tracking and uh, getting more information about individuals and how, how active they are and, and get it, getting this information in a somewhat streamlined way would obviously be hugely beneficial and make our lives easier, mm -hmm. but we're not quite there yet. We, say, we see just a lot of places where these data are collected, but there's still a lot of effort to, to kind of get them together comprehensively. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, I think it's so important that in addition to looking at mortality and causes of death, it's the project brought in to really look at the chronic conditions that have such a profound impact, not just on years of life loss, but as you alluded to uh, in your opening comments, on years of productivity and vitality and the ability to be generative, contributing members of society. Um, I understand that you've launched a prize to spur improved public health by turning evidence in the global burden of disease into successful programs that impact the public health challenges, which are so associated with this, uh, with really our, our global epidemic of chronic illness. Tell us about that prize and what you're hoping to accomplish. Oh, thanks much, Margaret, for bringing this up. Um, as I said before, data should really be used, or the data that we, that we develop for, from the global burden of disease should be used by very many different audiences for very, very many different purposes, right? I mean, we were talking about policy and decision makers, we were talking about researchers, we were talking about analysts, and so on. And so um, we, we launched a prize last year, and it's called the Rue Prize on Turning Evidence into Health Impact. Um, so this prize was initiated and funded by Dave Rue, who is a board member at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And it basically um, promises a prize of $100,000 for an organization or an individual that used data from the GBD to impact health for, uh, for a population. And so obviously a huge opportunity for you know, anyone from policymakers to, uh, to nonprofits and so on to kind of apply for this prize and, uh, and potentially win the money. But the importance of this goes much beyond this, um, where 
we're trying to get all these um, entries and, and examples of how people are using health data, and we plan on spreading information about these to inspire others. Um, so we're going to collect all these examples of um, how people are turning evidence into, into impact and really making, making a life better for people around the world, and then spreading these examples and hoping that others will, will use it as an example um, to also use more health data, use more evidence to base their decisions on. Um, the prize is currently um, under review for, for, for 2014, so we're not open for entries for this year, but there will be another opportunity in 2015. So if anyone knows of, uh, of great examples of usage of DVD data for impacting health, we would be happy to hear about that. We're speaking today with Peter Spryer, Chief Data and Technology Officer at the Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation at the University of Washington. You can learn more about his work by going to uh, healthdata.org, or you can follow him on uh, Twitter at Peter Spryer. That's S-P-E-Y-E-R. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, politicians from both parties are continuing to make false claims about Medicare in an effort to scare seniors. In the Kentucky Senate race, an ad from Democratic candidate Allison Lundergan Grimes features a retired coal miner who asks how Senator Mitch McConnell could have voted to raise his Medicare costs by $6,000. But McConnell did no such thing, and neither did any other Republican lawmaker. The claim is an old one about a 2011 budget plan proposed by Representative Paul Ryan. It called for phasing out traditional Medicare and gradually replacing it with a premium support system of government-subsidized private insurance. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office did estimate at the time that anyone enrolled in those private plans would pay about $6,000 more in 2020 than they would have under the current system. But the retired coal miner in the ad wouldn't have been affected by the plan. He and anyone else aged 55 and older would have stayed on traditional Medicare. More important, Ryan has made several changes to his proposal over the years, and the model that he now supports could produce savings for seniors, according to another CBO analysis. In addition, CBO says that its 2011 estimate was based on assumptions about healthcare spending that turned out to be incorrect, and its modeling of seniors and insurers' behavior has improved. McConnell responded to Grimes' ad with a misleading one of his own, claiming that the Affordable Care Act, quote, cuts $700 billion from seniors' Medicare. The bill doesn't slash $700 billion from the current budget. It's a cut in the future growth of spending over a decade, and the reductions apply to payments to hospitals and other non-physician providers. Also, that same $700 billion in cuts is part of the Ryan budget plan that McConnell voted to consider. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's a known fact that the current generation of American children is more obese than any previous generation. And at a Washington, D.C. community health center, Unity Healthcare, a pediatrician was in a quandary over how to tackle this growing health scourge. He began with a unique solution targeted to a teen patient whose body mass index, or BMI, had already landed her in the obese category. What he did was write a prescription for getting off the bus one stop earlier on her way to school, which made her walk the equivalent of one mile a day. Dr. Robert Zarr of Unity Community Health Center understood that without motivation to move more, kids just might not do it. The patient complied with the prescription and has moved from the obese down to the overweight category, certainly an improvement. He then decided to expand this program by working with the D.C. Parks Department, mapping out all the potential walks and play area kids have within the city's parks, mapping 380 of them so far. How to get there, parking, is parking available if someone's going to drive, bike racks, there's a section on pets, park safety. Dr. Zar writes park prescriptions on a special prescription pad in English and Spanish with the words RX for outdoor activity and a schedule slot that asks, when and where will you play outside this week? I like to listen and find out what it is my patients like to do and then gauge the parks I prescribe based on their interests, based on their schedule, based on the things they're willing to do. Ultimately, Dr. Zar says, with some 40% of his patient population grappling with overweight or obesity, he wants to make the prescription for outdoor activity adaptable for all of his patients and adaptable for pediatricians around the country. He's planning to create an app for his parks database where providers and patients alike can use it. And one day, he'd like to be able to track his patients' activities in the parks. Rx for outdoor activity, partnering clinicians, park administrators, patients, and families to move more, yielding fitter, healthier young people. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Thank you.